What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Hello and welcome to your Tuesday Takeout Outtake Especial. This is the fun and games portion of our program. Lighten things up just a tad. And I know impeachment feels like a very heavy subject. It is a heavy subject. It is the most serious act Congress can undertake. I said this on CBS News. I'll say it again. Everyone that is involved in impeachment is touched by history. The president, the Congress, those who cover it, it is the biggest political moment for its time in American history. It's historically been rare. It's becoming slightly more frequent. I mean, I was born in 1962, which means I have, am now living through three different impeachment sagas. Before I was born, we'd had one in our country's history. Andrew Johnson, look it up. Jamie Raskin is our special guest. He is a congressman from Maryland. We're in Tacoma Park, D.C., just on the Maryland, D.C. border at Busboys and Poets. Jamie Raskin is on the Judiciary Committee and the Oversight Committee. He's been part of many of the depositions taken so far in the impeachment inquiry. But we're going to wander a little bit off of the impeachment heaviosity, if you will, Congressman, and just talk about some fun things. So what got you involved in politics at the state level, and why did you think you needed to advance yourself into the federal level meeting Congress? Um, Well, the year was 2006. I picked up the newspaper. I saw that my state senator had introduced legislation to dramatically expand the death penalty in Maryland, and my state senator had introduced a pro-Iraq war resolution, and I was very opposed to the Iraq war. And I did a little more research. Um, My state senator wasn't doing anything to advance marriage equality and so on, and I just said, I'm going to run for the state senate. Everybody told me, uh, you're crazy. You can't beat a 32-year incumbent who's the president pro tem of the Maryland Senate and the boss of our local political machine in Montgomery County. And um, I said, how come you can't beat the machine? And uh, who is the machine? And they would name four or five people. I said, okay, we got 175,000 people in our district. Those will be the last five people I go talk to. I'll go talk to everybody else first. And my favorite story about the campaign major is when I first announced there was an article in the newspaper saying, Raskin's chances of victory are considered impossible. And um, uh, a pundit said that. And then nine months later, we got 67% of the vote. And there was another article uh, in the Washington Post quoting a pundit who said Raskin's victory was inevitable. So we went from impossible to inevitable nine months. I like to tell the young people. Life can happen that way. Yes. But But you have to get off the sidelines, in other words. Exactly. You know, I tell the young people in politics, nothing is impossible. Nothing's inevitable. It's only possible through the democratic arts of education and organizing and mobilizing people for change. And I've been a law professor for my whole career for 29 years. And I really do believe in a model of politics as education, that politics at its best is educating people about the Constitution, about the process, about the nature of issues, and about the value choices we've got to make as a people in order to move everything forward. You mentioned marriage equality. I want to ask you about this because oftentimes people say nothing happens in a American politics, we're all stuck and we're all angry and everything is immobilized. And I say, well, okay, you might think that and there is a certain body of evidence to back that up. 
But if you think about the question of marriage equality in 2004, I think it was 22 states had that as a constitutional amendment to ban it. Most of those prevailed. It was part of the get out the vote effort for George W. Bush and his reelection campaign. Yet about 12 years later, our country completely transformed its approach, thought process and political orientation to that issue. Indeed. Tell me well, what that tells you and what you saw, because that, that in, well, in some cases parallels your involvement in politics. Completely. When, when I announced that I was going to run, I talked about everything that I wanted to do in our state, to abolish the death penalty, to restore voting rights to the former prisoners, to pass marriage equality and so on. And uh, this was at my kickoff. And a woman came up to me and she said, Jamie, great speech. I loved your speech. But one thing, take out everything you got in there about gay marriage, because it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. Even the gay candidates don't talk about it. And it makes you sound like you're really extreme, like you're not in the political center. And I swallowed hard because I didn't want to offend her. I didn't have very many attendees that day, you know. And, uh, but I said, I'm glad you told me that because it makes me realize it's not my ambition to be in the political center, which blows around with the wind. It's my ambition to be in the moral center, to try to find what's right the best that we can and bring the political center to us. And that's basically been the public philosophy that I've pursued. And marriage equality is just the perfect demonstration of it. If you take a stand on principle particularly the equal rights and equal civil liberties of all citizens, even if there's a lot of prejudice and bias in the air, if you stand there and you challenge people and the credit goes to the LGBT movement and the millions of people who came out of the closet to their family and friends and co-workers and so on, you're going to change the country. And I think that um, we've seen remarkable changes in our society precisely because we've had mass movements of people who are unwilling to accept second-class status. Yesterday, uh, while the impeachment hearings were going on, I had to leave because I had a hearing in judiciary on the Equal Rights Amendment, um, which now suddenly has traction again because of the Democratic majorities that won in Virginia. And it's actually a former student of mine, Eileen Filler-Korn, who's become the uh, Speaker of the House of Delegates in Virginia, they've got a chance to become the 38th and critical state to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. So we needed to do some legislation uh, in the House in order to enable that to go forward. This is a process that we're still involved in, expanding the meaning of democracy and building uh, inclusion. Tocqueville said that democracy is always either contracting which it is with Donald Trump, where the institutions have gone, gone brittle and they're exploiting democracy, or democracy is expanding. And we've got to make sure we're getting back into an expansionary mode in order to defend our Constitution. We have uh, three threshold questions. This is the lighter part of the program. So um, everyone has answered these. Our audience loves the answers because it really gives them a sense of who they've been listening to. So in no particular order, most influential book in your life? There's a book that my thesis advisor, uh, who is a, my beloved uh, role model teacher in academia and political philosopher, Judith Schlar, wrote called Ordinary Vices. And I recommend it to anybody and everybody. You've got to read Ordinary Vices to understand the moral and political infrastructure of liberalism and why liberalism is such an important movement historically. Very good. Uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? Mm, that's tough. Uh, well, I, I mean, the, the Godfather is something I can <laughs> watch continuously. But I got to say, um, 
there, a, a, a less cliched choice here uh, is... Uh, Godfather is totally acceptable. Yeah. No, I mean, Godfather is really a, an absolute classic. But I loved the movie Witness. Um, Great movie. And I grew up, you know, around here uh, obsessed with... Um, the Amish country, mm-hmm. and uh, I just thought Witness was a brilliant movie. It is a brilliant movie. Yep. And uh, you're on a long flight or a long drive. What kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Well, that's easy. Uh, I don't know if it's a whole genre. I suppose it is. It's just Bruce Springsteen. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Bono I, and Bruce Springsteen are the most frequently named artists when people answer that question. I, that I've, will probably come as no surprise to you. I've been to 13 Springsteen concerts. I, Only I, 13? Yeah. I saw The Boss on Broadway. I went there uh, with my chief of staff, and uh, uh, you know he expresses to me the soul of America. Uh, so I, I love him. But I also have a, a, a close friend who's a folk rock singer named Dar Williams, and I will go see Dar whenever she performs. Because you're someone who's a graduate of Harvard Law, I always ask this of lawyers. Favorite law movie? Um, well, I guess that's kind of back to The Godfather, but... Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, as a kid, I was very moved by To Kill a Mockingbird, sure, undoubtedly. Um, I thought that that was a... How about yeah, the ver- probably verdict? To Kill a Mockingbird. How about the verdict? And the verdict, I must admit, I don't think I've seen the verdict. I recommend it. Okay. And I, Justice for All is also a great one. And uh, Anatomy of a Murder is also a great one. And Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is a great one, yeah. Those are all my favorite legal movies. With Springsteen in the background. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer, never will be, but I like law movies. Anyway, Jamie Raskin, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. See you again next week, folks. New episodes of The Takeout are available Friday mornings wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Katiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. 
So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.